Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to ALR PRA's Law Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We also partner with U.S. and international firms for international legal issues. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Our primary activities are law firm public relations, marketing, and credentialing. We also offer a wide variety of practice management services to help you with all the back-end business of managing a law firm. Today's guest is technology attorney Marcus Stephen Harris of the global law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, a top technology attorney with an impressive reputation for knowing the technology industry from inside out so that his firm continues to offer unparalleled services to technology and intellectual property clients. Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, is located downtown Chicago, Illinois. Their law firm's website is www.msh.com. TechLaw.com. So www.mshtechlaw.com. You can also Google that by finding uh, Marcus Stephen Harris LLC in Google, and you will find uh, the map to their office and uh, other information. Uh, we do have a great show for you this afternoon. We invite our callers' questions by dialing 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in that queue. Also, you can send in your questions by email directly to me at nick at alrpra.com. Again, N-I-C-K at A-L-R. PRA.com, and please put Law Talk Radio in the subject line. We have a disclaimer and some information to read with you quickly before we get going. So, as by way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests among guests and callers on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. And if you have further questions, you are always encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. Finally, all callers remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. A few quick announcements. We want to let you know there is an update to the story published in the Chicago Tribune by Jeff Cohen. Today at 1235, it was posted that with Board of Elections saying it is stopping ballot printing. Well, the Supreme Court order kept a manual on the ballot, now a manual comments. Quote, the state Supreme Court today issued a stay of the appellate court order knocking Rahm Emanuel off the Chicago mayoral ballot and ordered election officials not to print any ballots without his name. The one-page order does not mean the Supreme Court has agreed to hear Emanuel's appeal of the lower court ruling that could end his run for mayor. It only stops Chicago election authorities from going ahead with their plans to begin printing up to 2 million ballots for the February 22nd mayoral election without Emanuel's name. Quote, we called the printer and said, stop the presses, end quote, said Jim Allen, spokesman for the Chicago Board of Election Commissioners, and at the same time told them we'll start printing them again as soon as possible, unquote, with Emanuel's name on the ballot. Printing of the ballots without Emanuel's name had begun this morning in a facility in Lake County. The high court order came about 24 hours after the two-to-one appellate court decision that Emanuel does not meet residency requirements for the run for office because he was in Washington for the last year as chief of staff to President Barack Obama. The high court said it was still considering whether to grant Emanuel's request that to hear its appeal on an expedited basis. For more on this story, you can go to chicagotribune.com and... Uh, uh, and read and share and post uh, your comments as you see fit. Secondly, we want to let you know about an event going on tonight, January 25th, 
2011. Uh, right now, it's currently going on from 2 to 5. It's with a reception following from 5 to 6. I will actually be there. It's an MCLE seminar at the Chicago Bar Association at 321 Plymouth Court, Chicago, Illinois. It is the Collaborative Law Institute's Collaborative Law, expanding your practice with this limited scope model. The seminar covers the history, mechanics, ethics, and the shift in communication styles needed to practice in this new and developing area of conflict resolution. Discussions will cover the application of the collaborative practice model in family law and non-family law cases and the necessary steps practitioners must take to retool their practices to provide collaborative practice options to their clients. So again, there is a reception from 5 to 6 to learn more about the Collaborative Law Institute. Stop by Chicago Bar Association 321 South Plymouth Court. Our second announcement for the afternoon is another event coming up on February 15th. It's the International Software and Technology Law Firm of Marcus Stephen Harris. Marcus Harris is our guest today. His firm is going to be presenting their software licensing webinar on February 15th, 2011. The presentation is titled, A Webinar, Negotiating Software Licenses with Attorney Marcus Stephen Harris. Negotiating software licenses is a complicated process that takes time, it takes knowledge and skill. Changing technology and new methods for software development and delivery have changed the game. The consequences of getting it wrong can be severe. This webinar will focus on understanding software licenses, their legal background, and how to maximize your rights while minimizing your risks during the negotiation process. Again, as we introduced him earlier, Marcus Harris is an attorney who works with technology companies, software developers, and users regarding software development, licensing, ownership, and distribution. Prior to entering the private practice, he was senior corporate counsel at SSA Global Technologies, a global ERP software vendor. Mr. Harris also worked at the legal contracts department of SAP, where he drafted and negotiated hundreds of technology-related agreements with SAP's Fortune 500 customer base. For more information about this event or about Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, again, please visit www.mshtechlaw.com. And if you would like to attend the webinar, you can find a link on the law firm's blog under the Publications tab. Additionally, ALRPRA is promoting this event, and you can email me for more information, again, at nick at ALRPRA.com. Okay, moving forward, our topic for today is the Open Internet Order and FCC, the FCC's Open Internet Order. And um, Marcus, we'll let you take it away. I know we're going to talk a little bit about um, the general introduction again to net neutrality. What is it? What are the two sides of the debate? And then I guess we're going to talk about some recent developments with the Verizon suit, uh, Metro PCS suite, uh, then the FCC order, its rule on transparency. We'll talk about blocking and a prohibition on unreasonable discrimination. And then finally, we'll talk about the FCC's authority to regulate Internet networks and challenges to that authority. Marcus, this is a good show. I'm so glad to have you back on and uh, very interested in finding out how this is going to affect me, uh, other Internet users, small businesses, and all and all everyone who uses the Internet, right? Well, exactly. Thank you, Nick, for having us on again. I appreciate the opportunity. We had a good time last time, and um, we had a real good response from our last, our last uh, appearance on your show. Uh, like you said, what, what we want to talk about today are some recent developments uh, with respect to the net neutrality debate, um, the FCC's recent order, um, and some recent challenges to that order. Um, in September, if you recall, Nick, we had discussed the policy positions of Google and Verizon with respect to net neutrality and the FCC's policy position at that time on net neutrality. And like I said, since September, since our last appearance on the show, there have been some pretty significant developments with the FCC asserting its authority 
and some of these very recent challenges to that authority by Verizon and a smaller company called Metro PCS. What I want to talk about today, Nick, is net neutrality in general, just so that we're all on the same page about when we use that term, what it is, what it means, uh, what the policy positions are on either side of that debate. And then what I want to focus on uh, is the recent activity, its implications, and really where we go from here in light of that recent activity. So, Nick, as a way, as a way of background, the, the net neutrality debate is a serious debate um, that, that really will shape the future of the Internet in a very big way. I think there has always been an assumption that the Internet should be free and unregulated. It always has been, essentially, free and unregulated. And proponents of net neutrality believe that it is this unregulated unreg Internet that really does promote innovation, entrepreneurship, creativity, and business growth. Um, it really is a driver of the economy, and without an open and unregulated Internet, um, it really would stifle creation, innovation, and entrepreneurship. On the flip side of the debate, you have these Internet service providers, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and many others, who argue that they should have the freedom to be able to regulate their networks in the way that makes the most sense for them. Now, on one hand, you know, this may seem like, like it's an unreasonable position, but certainly it is based in some, some reasonableness. And primarily, you know, they are the owners of these networks. They have uh, put the intellectual capital and the financial capital into them to develop them. And they want to be able to regulate their use in a way that generates revenue for them and, you know, uh, maintains the service and makes the service available in a robust manner for all of its users. Um, so this... This, Nick, in its most distilled form, really is the net neutrality debate. It's, it's a very simplified approach, um, but I think it's appropriate for, for our discussion today. Um, like I said, it really is an issue that will impact the way that each and every one of us will use the Internet. I think... To, to fully understand this, you need to understand some of the most recent developments, and we discussed these last time when we were on the show, and as a backdrop for understanding the net neutrality debate, there is the Comcast case. Um, like I said, we discussed that in some detail last time, and what I want to do is summarize it here briefly because I think it really provides some context within which to understand the current state of, of this evolving landscape. So briefly, uh, Comcast had taken steps to essentially regulate the use of, uh, of an online service called BitTorrent, which is a download service where you can download a variety of, of types of things, movies and, and, other, and other media, um, over, over the Comcast network. Um, Comcast felt that the use of BitTorrent by a number of its customers was causing a substantial degradation to the Comcast network, um, so as a result, Comcast took action, and what it did, Nick, is it slowed access uh, to BitTorrent. Public advocacy, group, advocacy groups got wind of this, and what they did then is they filed a complaint with the FCC. So as a result, the FCC looked at the issue, and they issued an order against Comcast, which Comcast then promptly appealed. The FCC's order was then overruled, and that leads us to the state that we are in today. 
So in late December of last year, the SEC voted three to two on party lines to adopt net neutrality regulations for broadband Internet providers. So this is a significant step. So what we have seen before is essentially a policy position of, of the FCC that was played out in this Comcast decision. In the Comcast decision, um, the court had overruled the FCC, arguing that the FCC had overstepped its jurisdictional bounds. So now the FCC is coming out with an order trying to remedy some of these jurisdictional issues and really making its policy into um, in, in solidifying its po policy in an order. The order itself contains three basic rules um, that govern the way that Internet networks are managed. One is a rule on transparency, and we'll go into these in, in substantive detail, and we'll, we'll talk about them and what, what these things mean, both in interpretation and application. So one is a rule on transparency. The second is a rule on blocking, and the third is a prohibition on unreasonable discrimination. So while these rules in and of themselves sound sounds simple enough, there are some important exceptions and clarifications and really some important elements where those rules do not apply in equal force to certain types of distribution models. Um, namely, the order makes a distinction between fixed broadband and mobile broadband providers. Now, when we are talking about fixed broadband, Nick, we essentially are talking about wired internet. For example, we're talking about cable and DSL, just like you know the kind that runs from your your wall to your from your modem to your router. Um, but we're also talking about, and I think this is an important clarification, fixed wireless. So that would be things like or providers like Clearwire. Um, these people that f provide a fixed wireless solution um, over a wide wide area, a geographic area. Now, the FCC has a rationale for this distinction in that the, you know, the, the fixed broadband and the modal, mobile broadband um, providers are treated differently. The FCC's rationale is that mobile broadband is really an evolving um, industry. It's dynamic uh, with the recent adoption of 3G, uh, the coming implementation of 4G, and some other technology that is really down the road. Uh, so the FCC felt that you know there there warranted a, dis a distinct um, difference in the way these two industries were treated. I think what you need to know is that the rules that the FCC's rules as they apply to mobile broadband carriers are really looser and they really are much easier to implement from the mobile uh, broadband provider's point of view. So as as way of you know as as that being the background let's let's kind of go into each one of these rules and talk about their their interpretation and their application. So the first rule then was transparency. So per the FCC's order both fixed and mobile broadband providers are required to publicly disclose accurate information about their networks. Um, for example, their commercial terms, um, how, how the network uh, performs, average speeds, average uh, latencies, uh, what their network, network management practices are. So all of these things are what the FCC means by transparency. Mm -hmm. The rationale behind this really is twofold. And one, it is a desire to protect consumers or consumer protection. Uh, the FCC says that you know consumers really should be able to know what they are getting. And I think that makes sense. And the second is that 
if you're going to have these networks, you know, people need to know what the specifications of the networks are so that they can then develop devices to be used with those networks. So without this concept of transparency, you, know, you, you really are um, limiting the ability to innovate for these networks, um, and you know, consumers are kind of in the dark as to what, what they're getting and how to compare one network over the other. Mark, Marcus, before we go forward, can we pause for a break? Absolutely. Okay. So, again, we were just getting into the FCC order and the three areas that we're going to be talking about today and more. Um, for those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to ALRPRA's Law Talk radio program, and our guest today is technology attorney Marcus Stephen Harris. Let's pause for a break for our first commercial sponsor, which is the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity and marketing law, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm serving national corporate clients in the areas of copyright, internet law, advertising law, and trademark law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Our second sponsor of the day is The Lawyer Market, and I discovered this website recently, and it is one of the best-kept secrets for solos and small firms trying to market their practices. You can join The Lawyer Market for free, and the online marketplace will actually send you the name and contact information of consumers who are interested in hiring you. The Lawyer Marketplace offers a win-win solution to its listed attorneys and the potential clients searching for their legal services. Please visit thelawyermarket.com forward slash lawyers for more information. Again, that website is thelawyermarket.com forward slash lawyers. Again, to anyone who is just tuning in, if you have a question, you may call in to area code 917-889-9732, press option 1 to be placed in the queue, or uh, send an email to nick at alrpra.com. Marcus, back to you. Um, talking about transparency, you talked a little bit about uh, public disclosure uh, terms and how consumers need to know what's, uh, what's going on with their Internet service providers and the technology developers need to know how they can uh, better develop technology to make all of our lives better. Exactly. So that's, that's the first element of the FCC's order from late December, and the order being the net neutrality order, which is attempting to you know, manage the way that Internet service providers, these mobile broadband and, and fixed broadband carriers uh, manage their networks. So the first obligation is that they have some level of transparency. And like we were saying, you know, that transparency essentially meaning that they provide or publicly disclose information about their networks, about the speeds, the commercial terms, um, the network performance, latency, and what their network management practices are in general. And the rationale behind that, what we were just saying, is that you know it's from a, a consumer protection standpoint and also from a technology standpoint and an accessibility standpoint, so that uh, you know whatever devices that people are developing, that they can be sure that the uh, that they can be compatible with with whatever networks there are. So that brings us to the second issue, um, or the second element of the FCC order, and that is blocking. So clearly the FCC's order prohibits blocking, 
And with respect to the fixed broadband providers, and remember that there is a distinction between the requirements um, that are imposed upon mobile broadband providers and these fixed broadband providers. So this is with respect to the fixed broadband providers. A fixed broadband provider cannot block any lawful content. They cannot block an application. They cannot block particular services nor can they block particular devices. So what does this mean? Well, it essentially means that not only can you not block a particular website, which is certainly clear, but I think what's most interesting is that a, a excuse me, a, a fixed blob, uh, excuse me, a fixed broadband provider cannot block the services or applications that may live on a particular website. Now, that's a bit hard to understand, so this is the interpretation, the application. The SEC elaborates in order on what they mean by blocking, and what they do is they define it as any activity that is essentially less than blocking but could have the effect of degenerating service. So, you know, blocking per the SEC really means impairing, impeding, or degenerating. Um, you know, any of these applications, these services, websites, or devices. So these, these providers are prohibited from doing any of that. Now that is in stark contrast to a mobile broadband provider and, you know, the, the restrictions or the prohibitions placed on a mobile broadband provider with respect to blocking are radically different. The prohibition on blocking in the mobile world really only goes to a particular website or a website. Okay, so a mobile broadband provider is certainly not permitted to block access, block access to a particular website, but what they are allowed to do and what they can do is they can block applications and services that live on a particular website, and they are certainly allowed to block devices that they do not approve of. So you can see, Nick, that this is really a much milder obligation that's imposed on the mobile broadband providers. Mm-hmm. Now, you may be wondering why that is, for example, and I think really, you know, it's, it's the dynamic nature of, of, the mobile, of the mobile space, and, you know, you need to have some kind of um, authority over, you know, how many devices are joining your space, um, what kind of services are um, available um, over your network, because, again, you know, as the mobile services, as the mobile broadband provider, you want to ensure that there is no uh, degradation of service to all of your customers and that all of them have access to uh, similar speeds and the like. Mm-hmm. I think the one exception, and this is really an important exception in the, broad, in the mobile broadband world, is that mobile broadband providers are explicitly prohibited from blocking video or voice services that compete with them. Okay. So I think that's an, in, an interesting distinction. So to sum it up, for blocking with respect to mobile broadband providers, a mobile broadband provider can block an application and it can block a service. But if that application or service competes with the mobile broadband provider, blocking is simply not permitted. It's, can you give us an example? Yeah, I think the classic example would be something like Skype. Okay, so if you've got a mobile application provider um, and they want to block a uh, uh, an application that competes with it. So you've got AT&T, um, they are not prohibited, or they are not allowed to, rather, excuse me, they are not allowed to block something like Skype. So Skype must be able to uh, uh, be accessible over the network and be able to compete with with the uh, the provider. 
Another example would be something like, say, YouTube. If, um, I don't know, let's say Verizon or AT&T had a similar service, um, you know, this Uverse thing from AT&T, or um, I think Verizon has a similar, uh, some, something similar to the Uverse, um, some sort of a streaming video product, um, they would not be able to simply uh, block access to YouTube um, simply because they have a competing product. Okay, so it's all about anti-competitiveness with respect to blocking here in these two examples. Okay. So this, uh, these are some of the things that we were maybe concerned about before. I mean, these, uh, what reactions? Um, I'm just going to interject here for a second. What are the reactions to this that you have heard? Um, because these things don't sound so bad. Well, they don't sound so bad, and I think the reactions are really all over the place. And, and you know, you can look at this from a variety of perspectives, Nick. You can look at it from a, certainly a legal perspective, which we're doing a little bit here, and you can look at it from a political perspective, and you can look at it from a regulatory perspective. And it depends on what side of the fence and, and you know what perspective you're looking at this as to you know how you feel about this. I think a lot of people feel that this has really not gone far enough. Okay, and they really wanted more consumer protections. And they wanted some more. Um, concrete um, rules of the road, so to speak. Um, and at the, same, at the same time, you have people that think this just really goes too far. Um, you know, they, they think that the Internet service providers should be able to regulate themselves, that this really, rather than being, um, you know, uh, supportive of innovation and entrepreneurship and business and creativity, it really stifles it, essentially. And for example, you know, now broadband providers aren't really pro able to essentially develop, um, you know, their business plans out to, to, to have faster broadband connections um, and to offer more services. They're really, you know, hamstrung by, by some of these regulations. So, so the reaction really is all over the place, and it's really colored by your politics and, and your beliefs. So it's hard to answer that question because it really is all over the place. And, and well, in some respects, they're, they're, you know, you, you, people that on one side of the aisle you think would be you know, for it or against it and the same on the other side. Yeah, well, uh, as far as I'm concerned as a user, I'm so dependent on my BlackBerry. I'm dependent on my Sprint 3G, 4G wireless thing. That's on, I mean, if people saw me, I mean, <laughs> I'm the classic example. I'm on the brown line with a laptop with the Sprint 3G thing, and it's bouncing back and forth from 3G to 4G, and I know when or where not to. You know, that of the BlackBerry, right. there's not a minute of my day during work hours that I'm not either on Facebook, liking other people's posts or comments, responding to emails, phone calls, texts, and if if things were to slow, slow me down, it would I mean that would be wasted time. So as long what you know what I'm concerned about is being able to use services and not have things slow down or, or blocked. Um, and again, blocking you said is can you give me the description of blocking again for people out there? Right. Well, remember it it, it really does kind of depend on what what kind of a provider you are, whether you're a fixed provider um, or a mobile provider. But essentially, if you're a fixed pro broadband provider, you can't block any lawful content, okay? And we can get into that because, you know, what is lawful and what isn't, there's, there's you know, a certain level of vagueness there. You can't block particular applications or software, all right? You can't block particular services, nor can you block certain devices. And those are all, that's all in the, the fixed space, Okay, so what you're talking mm -hmm. about more is this wireless space with your Sprint, you know, 3G from MiFi kind of device and your BlackBerry. Um, so, you know, you need to look at both of these in hand. Um, and with respect to the mobile broadband, broadband providers, um, 
like I was saying, the, the blocking prohibition really only goes to a particular website. So if you're a mobile broadband provider, um, you're, you're not permitted to block access to particular websites. But what you are allowed to do, Nick, is you're allowed to access to block access to particular applic applications and particular services. Okay, now on one hand, you know, the rationale behind this is that, you know, it's in they're they're trying to get around anti-competitiveness or they you know, they want they want things to be competitive because they think that it will ensure an open internet. Okay. So, you know, this would go directly to your concern about, you know, not being slowed down, having the most robust access that you possibly can have and being able to access those things that you need to access. So, for example, you know, you may be, for whatever reason, an avid user of Skype, and you you know you find that when you're on the brown line, that actually is a better way for you to communicate with people, um, because you know your your cell service actually on the brown line is not particularly good, but you know for whatever reason your internet service is okay. Um, you know, if this rule were not there, then possibly your your internet provider would be able to block access to Skype. Okay. Mm, I don't want them doing that. Well, and that's what this is designed to prevent. So, you know, in, on one hand, you can say that this is good, and we'll talk about some of these in, with a little bit more specificity, and you can see, you know, where some people come out on both sides of this, and we'll see where, where you come out on it. Okay, well, this is a good point to take our another second break, and we'll read some daily legal news, um, a message from Jim Thompson, and then let's dive back into this. So let's pause for a second. Anyone who just tuned in, you're listening to ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio. Our call-in number is 917-889-9732. Email nick, N-I-C-K, at ALRPRA.com. Always please put Law Talk Radio in the subject line, even if you're listening to the show afterwards and have found it on, uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or you know, other places the shows are shared. Please feel free to share this show with other people, and please do always send in your, your emails because your content is what drives our programming. So today's uh, legal article of the day comes from the uh, American Law, the AMLAW Daily News. Uh, from January 24th, this was published, titled, King and Spaulding Hit with Malpractice Suit by Hawks Thrasher's Owens, posted by Tom Huddleston, Jr., as reported by the Fulton County Daily Report, a sibling publication, the joint owners of Atlanta Spirit, an ownership group whose holdings include the Atlanta Hawks, Atlanta Thrashers, and operating rights to Atlanta's Phillips Arena, filed a $194.5 million malpractice claim against King Spaulding on January 21st in state court in Atlanta. Just a month after settling a six-year legal batter with former Sprint owner Steve Belkin. The battle with Belkin began just after he went against the rest of the ownership on a trade that eventually brought NBA guard Joe Johnson to the Hawks in 2005. The remaining investors set out about ousting Belkin from the group and embarked on what would become a six-year legal battle to buy out his shares. King and Spaulding partner Raymond Baltz Jr. was tapped, taped by the ownership group when it was looking to buy out Belkin's stake in 2005. Now, according to the group's complaint, the contract firm the contract the firm drafted five years ago to outline the terms of the buyout was fatally flawed. The contract is a voided purchase and sale agreement meant to buy out Belkin's interests, but the other spirit investors claim that the contract's language put Belkin at an advantage in negotiating a buyout price far above fair value. Among the damages sought by the ownership group is $50 million 
claim for loss of franchise value for the Thrashers. The plaintiffs also say they lost more than $130 million in team operating costs since 2005 as a result of the ownership group's inability to sell the team while it was involved in the Belkin litigation. The plaintiffs' SSG group, LPF Atlanta, and HTPA Holding Company claim that the contract's flaws and the firm's conflict of interest cost them $194 million in financial losses. The suit also claims that the contract exposed the group to legal vulnerability and it was subsequently sued by Belkin in state court in Maryland. That action, the Thrasher owners say, added $14.5 million in legal fees to their liabilities. The complaint alleges that King and Spaulding, which represented the group of owners in that Maryland suit, tried to hide mistakes in the contract after identifying them in order to avoid the legal malpractice allegations. The rest of that story can be found uh, on the AMLAW Daily. Again, the AMLAW Daily is a great source of news um, all over the country and all the world. It's, it's a wonderful uh, source. So go check out that article. Very scary to anyone out there, uh, attorneys practicing who listen to that. Um, I hope that their malpractice insurance was well paid. <laughs> now, a uh, message from our sponsor, Jim Thompson. He's got clients now program. Jim Thompson's been on our show several times. He's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. His program called Get Clients Now will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenue. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim has been a recurring guest on our Lawyer's Toolbox show. That's our Thursday program regarding, regarding attorney marketing. Now, to learn more about Jim Thompson, Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit their website at midwestconsultants.net. Also, check out their testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting midwestconsultants.net. Now back to our show. We've got technology attorney Marcus Stephen Harris, who has generously uh, appeared today to talk about the open Internet order. We talked a little bit about the rule on transparency. And then we talked about the rules on blocking with fixed broadband and mobile broadband. So, Marcus, let's continue on with our discussion. Thanks, Nick. So, like you said, we talked about transparency. We talked about blocking, and I think you know to really to really get a lot out of this discussion and to really understand you know where the FCC is coming from and some of the uh, philosophical underpinnings of this debate, you need to kind of go back to that Comcast case that we talked about very briefly, and you know think about um, you know what Comcast did with respect to BitTorrent in that case, and then think about how you know these rules would impact Comcast's ability to do what it did. Um, so having said that, let's get back into the rules. The third rule. Um, or the third element of the FCC order deals with this concept of unreasonable discrimination. Um, so the FCC sets up a prohibition on unreasonable discrimination, and this really is uh, the biggest difference between fixed and mobile broadband providers. We've, we've seen some differences in the application of these rules with respect to transparency and blocking, uh, but this one really is uh, quite different. So for a fixed broadband provider, the carrier cannot engage in what the FCC calls unreasonable discrimination. And by that, the FCC, Nick, means that a fixed broadband provider must engage in what are legitimate and appropriate network management practices. Okay? So, you know, what does that mean? Well, I'm not really sure, and I'm not sure if anybody else really knows what that means at this point either. I think it's incredibly vague. And I think over time, it's going to have to be defined on a case-by-case -case basis uh, via litigation. 
the the SEC's order though did make some important comments regarding this rule against unreasonable discrimination, um, and one of the SEC's points deals with paying for a priority, and I think this goes back to some of the issues that you were talking about um, in, in your use of the internet, Nick. As sure. a as a content provider, you cannot pay a network operator to speed up your 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 data, your bits, and put them ahead of, of everyone else's. So this is this would be um, clearly, per the SEC, an unreasonable discrimination. So you know that's the that's one prohibition: paying for priority. Um, I think you need to contrast this though with what is a common practice, um, and that's the use of a content delivery network. And a content delivery network um, enables content to be forwarded or cached closer to the end user, so that this essentially ends up speeding up uh, the particular network. Okay, so you know, you're you're in the north side of Chicago, and Comcast has cached, you know, the the information that you use on a regular basis to its local, uh, you know, outpost over on the north side. So you know, it essentially has the effect of speeding up the network for for you. Um, the rationale behind this is that is it is simply storing content. Um, and the effect, like I said, is that it speeds up the network. And really, the FCC's rationale is this is available to everyone, um, and it is not. Uh, it is substantively different for the FCC than paying for priority. It's simply this, you know, shifting or caching of information. Um, I think additional can thing. I can, I'm sorry. Can you define caching of information? So many of us see the browsers, and the, you know, there's the cache. Clear the cache. What exactly is that? Well, caching in its most basic form, and again, you know, I, while I'm a technology attorney, I'm certainly not uh, a technologist, but um, caching, based on my understanding of it, and it really comes from kind of a copyright um, context, is you know, when you go to, let's say, ESPN, okay.com, you, you go check that out. It's a fairly bandwidth-intensive website. There's a lot of media on that site. There's videos, photographs, pictures, um, you know, content, and so you go to that uh, first thing in the morning. Um, you know, it, it takes a little bit longer than normal for it to load. Um, you may not, you may or may not notice that it takes a little bit longer. You go back to that site at, at your, on your lunch hour. Um, the site is uh, all that information has been cached or stored locally on your computer, so that um, only the the information that's new. So information that has been added to that site since the time that you looked at it in the morning to, from the time that you looked at it in the afternoon, that is only the new information that's actually coming from from ESPN servers. Okay, yeah. so so the site now has has the appearance of having been sped up for you, and it really is essentially. So that that in a nutshell is what caching is, and that's similar to this concept, this content delivery concept here. Okay. okay. So it's a little different than paying for priority. So you know, paying for priority would be, you know, Netflix uh, going and saying, hey, well, you know, we we want to, uh, we're going to pay you a million dollars more than you know our nearest competitor um, if you uh, you know make make our content uh, accessible uh, more quickly to our our, our customers. Okay, so it's a it's a different concept. It's similar, but it is a little bit different. Additional things uh, per the FCC that would constitute legitimate and appropriate network management pol policies would include things like, um, say, dealing with spam, dealing with excessive congestion on the network, um, and dealing with certainly unlawful content. Okay, you know this leads 
certainly, you know, the questions as to, you know, what, what essentially is excessive content or congestion and what is lawful content and what is unlawful content and what are my obligations with respect to dealing with those. Um, you know, and, and the order isn't necessarily clear on those and, you know, some, sometimes there's a level of vagueness associated with these things and, and some of these things will have to be vetted out over time. Um, but I think one of the important distinctions here is how this, um, you know, how the FCC deals with this from the mobile side. So mobile broadband essentially has has no unreasonable discrimination requirement, and that's why I said this is really the biggest difference between the two. Um, again, the FCC has a number of reasons for the difference in treating mobile broadband um, providers differently. Um, their reasons being that, you know, the industry is subject to change on a dynamic basis, uh, you know, the, the coming implementation of 4G, um, uh, the release of a new spe spectrum is supposedly coming out. Uh, you know, these are some of the reasons. Um, I think the FCC wanted to take a wait-and-see approach um, and, and keep kind of a, a laissez-faire approach to the mobile broadband with respect to this unreasonable discrimination concept. So in essence, under the FCC's order, a mobile broadband provider is really allowed to discriminate for, for no reason or an unreasonable reason, and it can block access to applications and services. So, you know, the, the, the obligations that it has are certainly lighter than, than the fixed broadband providers. But I think, you know, keep in mind and remember that the only thing a mobile broadband provider cannot do is block access to a competing website service or application. And they do have the same transparency requirements and obligations as everybody else. So there are substantive differences between the two. Um, this, this kind of dovetails nicely into this concept of tiered service. And if you remember back in September, you and I had discussed this at great length. Um, you know, and this is, for some people, really kind of a radical concept. And, um, but in some ways, it's really not. And so the SEC has made it clear that it is okay for a carrier to offer consumers different tiers of services, okay? Um, this wasn't necessarily clear before. So for example, you can, as a service provider, offer a gold package, a silver package, or a bronze package. And essentially, you know, the, the more that you are getting, the more you are paying for. And again, you know, this is in some ways kind of a radical concept, but at the same time, it's, it's essentially a familiar concept, certainly in telecommunications law um, and other aspects of, of consumerism. So, um, but I think what this does, though, Nick, is it raises a real concern of, you know, you've got, you're going to have two tiers of service here. You're going to have um, what we'll call a public Internet, and then what you'll have, uh, you know, what we can call kind of a second-class Internet, a ghetto Internet, if you will. Uh, and, you know, Internet providers are going to, the concern being that, you know, Internet providers would move um, all of this premium content, you know, the Hulus, the, uh, the Netflix, um, to a specialized service, but you know, a gold standard, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you, you can make an argument that, well, that, that at that point, that essentially becomes a private Internet. You know, the people that have money are able to access that, and the people that don't have the money, they're, they're able to access, you know, the, the, the public Internet, the basic cable Internet, if you will. So, mm -hmm. you know... Well, without wait, wait, quick question, if I can jump in, because and maybe you're going to answer this. Um, is there a difference between the public? Uh, you know, let's say I'm just a user uh, and I have the choice to pay for the public in the public internet or the better one or not. What about 
someone who has a website, a small business owner, would they have to pay to have their uh, site? Do they have to pay a premium to be on that public internet? Well, we don't know yet. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, there very well could be a scenario where an internet service provider wants to charge both its customers um, and the particular in, you know, the particular provider, the the website owner or operator, um, a fee for you know accessing the the internet service provider's network. So you know you could imagine a scenario, Nick, where you've got a bandwidth intensive uh, website like Hulu or um, Netflix. You know, and or YouTube, and you know Comcast coming to them and saying, "Hey, you know, look, um, we're going to offer um, your service, but it's going to be a you know a gold package service. Um, and you know, if you want to be a part of that, then you know, with higher higher bandwidth and things like that, you know, um, you know, maybe maybe you've got to pay more, uh, or or they would charge you for that. So I'm not sure if that's necessarily clear how that would be treated. Um, in some on some on one hand, I think that would be a violation of some of these uh, you know discrimination issues, um, but it may not be if it's done if it's done in a certain way. Um, so it very much it, it, it's very, it's very much a possibility. Um, so not only are you know the websites having to pay, um, but the uh, the consumers having to pay as well. But again, I think you know that that very well could run afoul of this unreasonable discrimination requirement. But but it's not really clear. So it's very very difficult uh, thing thing to face as a small business owner. If you know there's enough overhead uh, out there already for many of us, and to uh, you know add on another thing to you know put our site with what could be a very select uh, you know, group of sites could really hurt and really help some people depending on their situation. So very interesting. We'll be back with Marcus Harris in a few moments. We're going to pause for our final break. We want to let you know about some law practice management resources. Number one, a wonderful site, ababooks.org, ababooks.org. The title from today, and, and again, the way we do this actually is they have rotating uh, titles. So we'll go to ababooks.org and literally grab the first title that pops up and randomly select and bring them to you. Today's title is About Competition Laws Outside the United States, Second Edition. So again, About Competition Laws Outside the United States, Second Edition. This is a premier English language treatise providing in-depth coverage of over 15 leading competition regimes worldwide with which U.S. businesses which U.S. business trades with extensively. Substantive areas of law are covered include merger control, cartel enforcement, treatment of horizontal and vertical restraints, abuse of dominance, unfair trade practices, judicial procedure, and enforcement agency structure and operations. This new edition provides substantially greater depth and breadth of coverage than the prior edition and supplement, including an increased focus on intellectual property issues and amnesty and leniency programs. The new edition will also have increased global coverage, including China, Korea, and Spain. Each chapter has been authored by leading competition law practitioners from their respective jurisdictions. Each country or jurisdiction discussed in its own chapter with a similar structure for ease of use. The two the new two-volume edition will provide a complete revision of the prior edition and supplement, which were published in 2001 and 2005, respectfully. Again, that title, About Competition Laws Outside the United States, second edition. Our second practice management resource today is the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, the Chicago Lawyer Magazine. You can subscribe to these publications for up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. 
Also check the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for those lawyers going through a career transition. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for lawyers in flux in their careers. Visit attorneysintransition.com. I'm one of the weekly advice columnists for the Attorneys in Transition publication and feel strongly about the many benefits offered by a law bulletin publishing company. Please take a look at attorneysintransition.com and don't be afraid to comment on any of the blogs or comments made there because it really does help everyone who writes for the publication drive their content. Our third resource of the day for practice management is, of course, the Law Practice Management School and Law Practice Management Book offered by ALRPRA. Classes are currently underway. We also can work with people on an individual basis and we'll sell you the Law Practice Management course in an easy-to-use hand uh, desk reference. So the Law Practice Management School, for more information, nick at ALRPRA.com. Back to our show now, the call-in number 917-889-9732, option one to be placed in the caller queue. Again, if you're listening this show after the fact and you have found it on a LinkedIn group or on Facebook or or somewhere else or someone emailed, please share it on your page. Uh, This is good information and many people want to know about this information, so please always feel free to share our shows and email us with your suggestions and input for content. Again, with our Facebook page, it often happens that someone will uh, drop a note and and post something and then they'll, uh, you know, they have an opportunity possibly to be on the show. We had a gentleman just recently who uh, talked talked about a case where the um, the federal government it was a federal suit and the the litigants sued Bank of America on mortgage fraud or foreclosure fraud and they won uh, the individuals on MSNBC uh, recently and I've been communicating with him today about getting him on the next show so if you have an idea for a show again go to our Facebook page go to Facebook and into the search box search law talk radio and you'll find us so back to our show uh, back to Mark Harris Mark uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, authority to regulate internet and challenges to that authority that's the interesting thing in my book yeah, I think it is interesting. Um, you know, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, and I really don't think anybody's going to disagree with you that when you would say that the FCC certainly has authority over the Internet, um, and it's really because it's a service, the Internet is a service covered, you know, by radio or wire. So there is some authority, some regulation authority there. Um, but, you know, what what you need to understand here is that this order um, it was a three-to-two decision along party lines, three Democrats and two Republicans. Um, and the two Republicans were very um, vocal in their dissent. I think it was a 28-page uh, single-space dissent. So, you know, that has certainly important implications when you look at the sustainability of this order and what, you know, the, the potential challenges that may be um, uh, that it may be subjected to over time. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's certainly not. It wasn't a slam dunk. Okay, we can put Did it you that say way. Twenty-eight pages. Right. It was a twenty-eight page single space dissent. So I mean, it's a fairly wow. robust dissent. Okay. Um, and again, it was along party lines, and it certainly, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not really that clear cut of an issue. And most of the debate really does have to do with, um, you know, the legitimacy of the authority over, uh, over the internet by the FCC. Um, like I said, you know, it's pretty settled that the the FCC has authority because the Internet's a service covered by radio or wire, but its ability to actually um, impose regulations over network management is what is kind of at issue. So I think if you look at this, the order, Nick, represents 
a shift to some extent in how the SEC sees its role here. You know, historically, you would regulate, um, or you regularly you don't regulate in the absence of a market failure. But here, you don't have any kind of a market failure. Um, the order isn't based on a finding of a market failure. There's nothing wrong with you know the way the internet is 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 in place today, but you know, the order really stems from a belief on the SEC that it has the right to regulate based on what it sees as coming consequences. Okay, um, you know here. I think the SEC, if you kind of get into the mind of the commissioner, um, believes that it has ancillary authority to regulate the Internet based on um, the obligations that the SEC has under the Communications Act. And these go back to you know, where it certainly has authority over the Internet pursuant to wire and cable, but where it doesn't necessarily have explicit authority to regulate these management, the, the network management. I think to justify its position, Nick, the FCC essentially argues you know that Congress has given has given it the authority to regulate cable and telecommunication providers, um, which you know many of these internet service providers are. Um, and for the SEC to effectively do that, it has to also then you know have this ancillary authority or jurisdiction um, to to implement these network management regulations. Um, you know, essentially, you know, look, we're expected to do things on the internet, but we can't unless we 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 implement you know these network management regulations. So that's the FCC's position, and I think it really, to some extent, is seen as a stretch. And there's a lot of fancy legal footwork that's going on for the FCC to kind of justify its position. You know, there's a lot of different uh, you know, so there's some backpedaling and you know, some, certainly some creative lawyering that you can see um, uh, from that Comcast case onward. Um, and you know, that leads us to where we're at today. And um, like I said, this is a, a dynamic and fast-moving area of the law. In fact, just last week, Verizon filed a lawsuit um, arguing that the SEC does not have the authority to create the rules that it has uh, promulgated here. Um, and Verizon's rationale for, for really you know, going after the SEC here is that the SEC's order creates uncertainty for um, the communications in industry, for innovators, for consumers, and then for investors as well. So it's I think it's an interesting you know flip on the debate here. You've got the internet service providers now um advocating, you know, that their position really is one for innovation and for the benefit of the consumers. Whereas, you know, in the past when you're looking at these public policy debates, you had, you know, the proponents of net neutrality of an open internet arguing the very same thing. Um, you know, that this is good for consumers, that you know, that this is good for innovation and for creativity and for business. And now Verizon you know, when trying to, you know, get rid of these regulations is arguing the same exact thing. Then you've got a smaller player um, that actually just filed a lawsuit. I think they filed it today. I haven't had a chance to look at that lawsuit. Um, but I did read some some uh, uh, newspaper articles about it, and that is Metro PCS, um, which is a small um, mobile provider. And for, from what I understand, Metro PCS had implemented um, a very low-cost um, service to its customers, I think it cost $40, but one of the things that it, it prevented those customers from doing was um, having access to, to services like Skype. And so, you know, consumer advocacy groups were complaining, and then what uh, Metro PCS did is that they filed a suit against the FCC as well in order to challenge uh, the validity of the order. So that's essentially where we're at today. 
And I think that you're going to see a lot of movement on this issue in, in the, the very near future. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see if all this legal, you know, fancy footwork, so to speak, of the SEC and justifying its authority is really going to hold up. My my thought is that it may not, um, and that you may see um, this debate coming into the forefront again and having uh, some substantial revisions to it. Mm-hmm. What are your uh, thoughts as far, because I know this is a question people may be uh, listening or asking, um, what are your thoughts as an intellectual property attorney concerning um, the lawful versus not lawful? And again, thinking back to um, BitTorrent and the other, um, you know, thinking about all the entertainment industry people, everyone who's got uh, information out there and people are uh, rather savvy in downloading torrents and converting them into um, the music. So it's illegal downloading. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if if you look at the order, there's certainly the ability to deal with, you know, unlawful content and excessive congestion. So, you know, that's something that I think you're, you're depending on where you're at in that debate and, you know, what your position is with respect to intellectual property, um, you know, that's, that's something that certainly... Um, left within the ability of the Internet service providers to to deal with uh, in a way that they see fit. So I think that's certainly good. Um, and, you know, really when we deal with unlawful content, we're generally talking about three areas. We're talking about copyright infringement, um, intellectual property infringement. We're talking about child pornography, um, and we're talking about spam. So, you know, you've, you've got those three areas, and I think those are clear-cut indications of, you know, illegal activity that can be monitored and can be regulated by these Internet service providers. Um, and I think, you know, it's certainly a good thing, and I think you want them to have that ability. But I think, you know, at the same time, there, you know, there are very serious issues of constitutional, uh, you know, free speech here and, and things like that, which kind of get, you know, put to the wayside. Um, but, you know, this is really a complex issue, and it's got a lot of different levels that you can look at it. You know, for example, I mean, you know, the, the, the way that, you know, people want to sell content is directly tied to, you know, the way they want to speak. And, you know, is that a, a, an improper regulation of speech? It, it very well could be. So, I mean, I think, you know, the debate is interesting and, and it has a lot of far-reaching implications um, and certainly, you know, different subtleties and you can approach it from a variety of ways. It, it really is a far-reaching and impactful issue in order that you see. It's very interesting when I talk to many small business owners, lawyers, non-lawyers, people who rely on some of the online tools to market their practices, um, to communicate with clients. There's so much going on out there, and it's so difficult for people to stay up, especially if you're not technology savvy necessarily, and you don't have an interest in, in many of these things, um, you might not be following. And uh, there are so many things that are going on out there that it's it's so. I'm, that's why I'm so happy that you were on the show today to explain some of this because uh, I don't think that the net neutrality debate and the issues are necessarily um, inherently uh, make sense to people, just average internet users. So I do thank you for your time and valuable time today and sharing this information, Marcus. Well, it's always a pleasure to be on the show, and it's always a pleasure to uh, you know talk to you and talk about these issues. We can talk about these for a long time. They certainly are interesting, and like I said, they do have far-reaching impacts. Certainly. Now, can you identify uh, maybe to listeners out there uh, who would be a good person to get in touch with you, how they can get in touch with you, what type of issues you might be able to help them with? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, they can access us via our website, um, you know, mshtechlaw.com. Uh, you know, take a look at the contact information there. They can also call me at uh, 
0570 if they have any of these issues. I mean, you know, these issues come up um, in a variety of contexts and, you know, rear their ugly heads. Not only these issues, but kind of collateral issues associated with intellectual property and marketing and, you know, you know trade secret issues. So, um, you know, we certainly um, can represent people in connection with, the, you know, the full gamut. And these issues are certainly right in our wheelhouse and things that we deal with every day. So, you know, again, MSH Tech Law is the website, and there's a, a very good description of uh, the attorneys in our firm and the practice areas in our contact information. Wonderful. Another show I want to tell people about upcoming, um, Marcus Harris will be back uh, with another guest, our friend Laurel Bellows of Bellows and Bellows PC, uh, or actually the Bellows Law Group they are now known by, and they will be talking uh, together on a panel discussing employment uh, employment transitions. Uh, Laurel Bellows is uh, executive compensation transactional attorney, uh, and Marcus is an intellectual property attorney. We'll be talking a little bit about some of uh, the IP issues, and um, can you expand a little bit about that, uh, generally, the employment issues you're going to talk about, just a teaser? Yeah, what we're going to talk about in, in, in pretty good detail are some of the obligations that you have when you leave a certain, you know, your, your place of employment for another place of employment. You know, we run into this on uh, on a regular basis. We represent a lot of technology companies, and a lot of them feel that a lot of these employees that leave feel that they're entitled to take, you know, their work product and, you know, the projects that they're working on to their new employer um, and that certainly is something that is uh, generally not permissible and can have some pretty significant um, you know, legal consequences um, for those employees. And we look at this from the perspective of both an employee and what employ an employee needs to do to protect themselves from doing those kinds of things, because sometimes those things can be inadvertent. And we look at it from the perspective of an, employ of an employer and what they can do to protect their intellectual property, their intellectual capital, and their trade secrets. Wonderful. And that show is going to be February 24th. That is a Tuesday at 3 Central. So tune in. Also, you can check out all of our shows on ALRPRA.com. There is a tab on the website for Law Talk Radio. We have all the archive broadcasts there. We uh, do our best to let you know about upcoming shows on there as well. There's also a contact page. Everything you need is on the site, ALRPRA.com. So again, Marcus, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate your input. Thank you. Okay. I'd also like to say thank you to our listeners for always tuning in loyally to the Consumer's Law Journal, which is our Tuesday program on ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio. We'd also like to thank today's sponsors. We had the Intellectual Property of Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. We had the Lawyer Market and Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group. Again, for upcoming shows, please visit ALRPRA.com forward slash Law Talk Radio for upcoming broadcasts. By way of disclaimer, again, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results Results may, may vary and are based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests among callers and guests on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. If you have further questions, you are encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. Finally, all callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Now, these Law Talk Radio broadcasts are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Thank you again. This is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time. Hello, hello.